just amazing that all of this evidence has just not been tested because, and, and as Jamie says all the time, if this crime would have happened today, they would have done all of this testing right away to find out who committed this crime. And we have to reiterate that for the past eight, 10 years, that McLean County taxpayers have been paying for McLean County State's Attorney's Office to fight this case, where the Exoneration Project has said they will pay for all the testing. So how many thousands of dollars of McLean County taxpayer money have they used to fight this DNA testing? Right. And I think we did a good job of demonstrating that the technology exists, it works, and there's stuff here that could be tested. So like you always say, Tam, why not test the DNA? Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 30. The truth is at our fingertips. Q&A. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment, where we dodge rabbit holes, slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. In this episode, we noted that the glaring question is, why didn't they print the counter, the shelves, the register, the safe, the storeroom entrance, and the alarm button? Ray, what is your perspective on this? Well, I, I guess we will never know why they didn't do some of this. And we can only guess that uh, maybe they did and uh, didn't, uh, weren't successful in picking anything up. We don't know if they were kind of analyzing stuff by their own sight as they were doing it. This is a business establishment. And I kind of find it hard to believe that they only were able to pick up eight latent prints from it. This is a, they have counters. They have the, obviously the cash register. It was touched the alarm button that was touched and to come up with no partial prints, no um, smudged prints, anything like that. It's a little hard to believe. Back in 1991, there wasn't a pandemic going on, so I don't picture Bill Little is being told to wipe down the counter every time somebody walked in and out of the store or wipe off the door handle and with disinfect it and all that stuff. It's just kind of unbelievable to me that they didn't come up with more uh, evidence at the time. Don't you think there should have been, a, like you just said, there should have been other unidentified prints. They should have come up with other prints if they would have 
properly investigated the scene. Because like you just mentioned, there wasn't a pandemic. Bill Little wasn't wiping things down hourly. So shouldn't we have had a whole bunch of other prints that were unidentified? That's kind of my point is, I mean, it's a small gas station, but there's people in and out all day, all evening, and they come up with only eight prints that they lifted. Now, you can get a smudge. You can get, you know, like a half a thumbprint. You can get, you know, some the side of somebody's fingers, partial palm print. If somebody leaned on the counter, all of those could be lifted and brought back to a lab and, you know, more closely examined. Unless we could put the crime scene text on the stand and they can say, no, there is absolutely nothing there. It just seems uh, crazy to me that they didn't find a whole lot. There's a lot of key surfaces, too, that they neglected. Yeah, I was going to say that there, you know, according to the report that we have, all of those prints were from the door, the door, the door handle, the glass. They were all from the door. Ray, am I missing something? Did you see something else? No, it's the prints will stick on certain surfaces better than others. I mean, some surfaces are right, but... Or, or, or rough, but they can, uh, that's where you would pick up a partial print, you know, from where the finger touched the raised portion of the, of the surface. They can examine that. If they had something to compare it to, they can compare those. Nothing that we have says they actually lifted and are even holding them somewhere. So to be clear, the only prints that they have are fingerprints. They got no palm prints. The records that we have said they had eight lifts, which is like a card. that They, they, they dust it, they find a print, and they put it as like a piece of tape over it and lift that print up, and they put it on a card. One of those cards had two prints on it. And that's all we, that's, that's all the paperwork that we have. That's the only thing that they say, uh, they sent to the lab. That's the only thing that we find in, in any of the evidence receipts of what was, what's been stored. So they don't even specify if it was a fingerprint or a palm print on anything? Not specifically. I mean, we can take it. They say a latent print. Well, was just assuming it was a finger or a thumb. I was just asking because I know I think you can get more DNA, obviously, from a palm print. So just wanted to clarify that. They do specify palm prints when they did the palm prints of Bill Little's hand, you know, so it makes sense that if they didn't specify palm prints that it was fingerprints or should we even make an inference? The fingerprint cards, whenever they take them, you know, uh, you go in and get for a license or something, they they roll your fingers and they take your palm print and they have that as what's filed away for comparison purposes. They had the Little's palm print whenever they took his prints. Uh, they had other individuals' palm prints on cards that they compared a couple of them to, but they didn't lift any from the scene that we know of. So now at the time that they took these prints, was the technology available to extract DNA from those prints? I don't know if it was available. I mean, I think DNA back then was in its infancy. and So uh, we're, it, we're looking at new evidence here because now we can test for DNA on these prints. 
Yeah, from the research that I did, that has been a long time coming. They've been, because you can look at the progression, I think maybe one of the earliest articles I saw was in 2006 when, you know, it was, I I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe it was the first time because there was a research paper done on it and they were like, hey, you know, we were able to do this once. And it was also from good prints. So when they have a, a test group, they're going to have people right there. They're fresh prints, rolling them, getting really good prints and the ability to extract them. That was my understanding of the first study that I sure. saw. But I now think- it's a lot, uh, a lot better, a lot better because that was a long time ago. I think it's important to note that we have new evidence here because of the fact that we can get possibly from our episode this week, we noted too, that we can check for DNA on these prints. Absolutely. that That's what George Skiro said. He said he does it. He does that all the time. So people need to ask the question, why wouldn't the state want to test these prints today for DNA? Well, also... <laughs> They could be palm prints in there, too. I mean, it seems like they didn't even know what they were looking at. So, I mean, smudges are good for DNA testing. So, I mean, they keep saying there was only one good one, but for new evidence testing, all of them could be helpful. Correct. Right. That's exactly right. Again, we don't know. Like Leslie says, they could could have lifted some smudge prints or partial prints, and they could be tested now. But we don't know if those, if anything else exists. All we have is the eight that they talk about in evidence reports and what came from the state police lab. That's all the state police dealt with. So we don't know if, if they picked up anything else and have it stuck all the way in the corner of the evidence locker. We just right. don't have that. Could there be in the evidence box? items from the crime scene that they collected and saved or did they, do you think they didn't save anything that's a just a wild guess it, it's a crime scene and i don't understand how they didn't didn't even take the cash register back to the back to their station and and have somebody look at it close up i just can't fathom how they they processed a homicide crime scene in a few hours, even in 1991. Right. Um, it's just kind of unbelievable. And it, I keep going back to the, the initial stuff that the police did. And it's it's just was even a, if even if we look at it and say that they botched the entire investigation and there's nothing left in the crime locker other than these eight prints, we still have these eight prints and they can still be checked for DNA. Correct. For sure. Okay, so I was just looking over this report, and that's a really good point that Leslie made. So what they specified at the end of it was there was only one print that was suitable for APHIS, right? But they have all of these other prints in Exhibit 4, and they have notes on each of their, like, 4A, 4B, 4C on. And it says, and it has errors, and it says not suitable, not suitable, two suitable, one suitable. So there are not suitable prints, which perhaps, Leslie, those are smudges or partials 
that you're saying, you know, maybe they would have a better chance at getting DNA from. Right. Especially if there's they're greasy and they're smudged. I mean, perfect. Right. And Leslie, as you say, that evidence might not have been usable back at the time of the investigation, but it certainly could become very useful today. So because of the way it was processed under like fingerprints and they already ran it, the state is going to just keep trying to say, oh, that's old evidence. That's old evidence. But now because of new technology, the DNA remnant, that turns it into new evidence. So are Jamie's lawyers going to be able to argue that? And that's what they're arguing because in the Illinois Post-Conviction Act, it must be new evidence, but it does include DNA testing, bullets, fingerprints. It is that it was not tested with new technology. And that's exactly what it says. And that's exactly what they're going to argue. And to get back to your other comment about the evidence, could there be evidence in there? I know that Tara has seen the evidence that we want tested. I've never asked that question. So I don't know if there's other, you know, she confirmed, yes, the bullets are there. Yes, the clothes are there. Everything, you know, the fingerprints are there. Everything that they've said that they took in that we've seen on these reports and that we're asking for testing on is definitely there. But I've never asked if there were other items. That's a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because I'm wondering if they can, if there's still prints on them, or even if not prints, just DNA. I mean, you can get DNA out of crevices of things. So, and now you can replicate DNA to huge volumes. So it might have been useless back then to have a, an item that it's thrown in the box, but you know, it could be really good now. And while we're talking about that, when we talked to George Skiro, he talked about MVAC and he was talking, remember that Bob Ruff brought that up and I had seen mixed reviews about MVAC, but George said, yeah, that MVAC is excellent, that they've gotten perfect DNA profiles from clothes he he talked specifically about a jacket that they used MVAC for. And uh, he was like, if we could afford one at our lab, we would have one. But he knows who can do it, you know, and do a good job. So those clothes are there. I want to point out just how it's crazy that you could get a life sentence for murder of a boy that you didn't do. And you and your whole team could still not know what's in the box. And that's fine. <laughs> well, I, I guess that Tara knows what's in the box, but that's just not a question I've ever asked because I don't have access to the box. But she did go and review the evidence that was in there. We mentioned that in 1991, the print was compared to Jeff Durbin, but did not match. Can we give the listeners a recap on who Jeff Durbin is? Jeff Durbin and a partner is a. Uh were going around and doing burglaries or robberies at the same time in 1991. And uh, Bloomington police at least looked at them as possibilities. Durbin had been locked up for other robbery. He did gas stations, uh, a motel, I believe. And so they were suspects. They looked at Durbin's fingerprints and compared them to the 
prints that uh, were found from the Clark Station. Uh, they also looked at Durbin's uh, footprints, although sometimes I wonder what they're thinking that he uh, they took his boots and compared them to sneaker prints that were found at uh, Clark Station. So I don't know what they were trying to do with that one, but uh, they, they looked at him and then wrote him off because there's really no other <laughs> papers in any anything that we've come up with for Durbin and Miller, the other guy's name was Jeff Miller, of how they were actually cleared of the Clark robbery. What what made the police, Bloomington police, just say they're not suspect. They were never looked at anymore. They didn't uh, bring them in. Like We don't have anything where they brought them in for an interview or questioned them, anything like that. Well, I think... The whole shoe print thing was because in one of the cases that Miller and Durbin are suspected of, there was a shoe print on the counter. Like one of them jumped up on the counter to get across. So I think in the Truth and Justice episodes, we were all discussing like, okay, so if there was a shoe print on the counter there, how come the counter in Jamie's case wasn't tested for a shoe print? You could have just hopped up there the same way if it was him. Right. I mean, it's just... um... I mean, a little bit of common sense, you know, if you looked at the pictures of the prints that they took off of the um, the lifts there, the photostatic lifts, electrostatic lifts, they were they were sneakers. They were Converse. And Durbin wore my cowboy boots. So uh, that's what uh, that's my point with the Bloomington police compare or send to the lab to compare Durbin's oh, boots. Yeah, like you don't need to send boots to compare to Converse sneakers. Right. Sure. Well, how, how was he jumping up on a counter in cowboy boots? Well, yeah. Just... Well, I think the idea was that it was Miller who jumped up on the counter. And if we remember, Miller was like a short little guy. So, I mean, that's better. But where's Miller's footprint then? That's so crazy to me. Well, there was Miller was kind also of... like a crackhead, I think we uncovered. So he was like a short little hyper crackhead doing crazy things like running through traffic with a gun. So Right, um, that's what I was remembering. Yeah, like I episode. believe he would <laughs> hop up on the counter real quick. <laughs> he ran out right after he did it, right? And yeah. he like had a gun and the and a mask on. Was <laughs> it a Halloween mask in traffic? <laughs> yeah, and then like two girls who know you. <laughs> you. They're like, uh, I know who that is. <laughs> All right, right. <laughs> Back to you. Now that we had our had our jokes. Okay, no, nothing. There was. Uh, I said we don't know why they didn't. How they cleared Jeff Miller and Durbin. They just kind of uh, went off in the wind after they looked at. Well, his prints weren't there. We didn't find them, so we don't have any connection. But you know, they don't have Jamie's prints there either. So I don't know how they keep uh, moving this. And then we have how he confronted Jamie in his cell shortly after his conviction and was like, oh, I just wanted to see who they pinned the Clark Station murder on and like, you know, laughed at him. And it was Durbin. So I always wondered about that because he was, uh, you know, they pled out and they pled out around, you know, around that time. So what are you going to do? You're going to plead out for armed robbery or wait to get pinned for murder? You know, it just. Oh, yeah. Cause then you're like off the hook. You think, oh, I went, 
you know, away right. for robbery. They'll leave me alone now. They got me. Right. Exactly. That's that always stuck with me about them. So Ray, can you talk a little bit about, I know that they compared those prints to other people and then, and then clarify the process um, about submitting the prints to IAFIS. You know, they kept saying that, well, they would send them something and then they would compare it. And is that a, just a visual or a physical examination or is that they're running those prints back through the FBI or ISP database? One of the reports we got back, whenever they found a print and they say this one was classified, was suitable for APHIS, what they do, they, they, they classify a print. They give a, they put like a number, a whole sequence of numbers and letters. It, it says what kind of a print it is, if it's a, a loop or a whirl, how many ridges, and it gives it, an, it gives it a number. So people can have the same classification. And that's what come back to the one APHIS print. There was five or six people, suspects, that it had the same classification. And then they examined the actual latent that was picked up compared to the printed fingerprint of that individual. And that's where it comes down to comparing the points, that the ridge stops so far from the from the end of the, the center of the print. I, I'm not a fingerprint expert. I know they classify them by the, the ridge count and, and distances, and then they compare points. And so many points is what makes it the match. You know, a half dozen people can have the same classification of their, of their index finger print. Not all half dozen people have the same fingerprint identical. I'm not sure if I'm clear with that. It's it's a it's a very complicated science, and I mean it's uh, it takes the experts to sit down and with magnifying glasses and, and microscopes to come up with the actual comparison. So, like the the half dozen or five that came back, uh, we don't know who those people are uh, because it's all been redacted from the report that was put back to us but none of them matched identically to that one print that was classified. All the other prints, like Leslie said, they have prints there and there's evidence on them. There's DNA on all those others. Probably the other seven or eight or seven prints that were picked up from the Clark station couldn't be classified. They didn't have that, couldn't come up with that number sequence that would put them into the into the FBI's computers. And the other important thing is that none of the witnesses, even our star witness, Martinez, who we don't really believe, but none of them said that the person in the Clark station had gloves on. So the person who was seen arguing with Bill or the person Martinez said supposedly backed out of the door with his hands in his pocket, nobody cited the person was wearing gloves. So these imprints are really important. Exactly. I mean, you, you never know. And at this point, I don't know Martinez would, if he said yes or no, the gloves at this point, nobody would believe him anyway. Right. But I just mean like he just never said it. So it's just more ammunition to say, oh, well, that's your star witness. He's 85% sure. So 
you know, let's run these prints. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. And now we have a listener question from Ellen. Ellen writes, What in heaven's name? Did Workman just waltz into court and make stuff up to make it seem like the unidentified fingerprints were an APHIS and IAFIS and available to be run and compared and then never returned with the paperwork to back it up? Can it be followed up on? Did the judge ever ask about the follow-up? Wouldn't the judge be furious to find out that he or she was lied to and wildly misled? So, yes, he did. He walked into court and he said the fingerprints, plural, have been running in IAFIS since they were submitted in 1991. We filed FOIAs with IAFIS, the FBI database, current database, and they confirmed that there were no prints related to the case in their database. So just to be sure we weren't missing anything. We filed the same FOIA with the Illinois State Police, who also said that they had nothing responsive to the request beyond what was already given, which we just talked about earlier about the comparison prints that were given out. Now, that last report from the ISP that we got was May 28th, 1991, and those names were redacted. So it's my understanding that if it runs in there, it, it spits it just, just like this did, it will spit out comparisons or likely. And, and just like Ray said, you have to physically examine those or visually examine those. So it's likely that if those, well, if that print, which was one. So that's the first problem is he's saying that fingerprints in court. He just makes it sound like there were multiple fingerprints. They're just being run in all the time. Yeah, he's trying to build credibility where there is none. Bolster it. Continuously, continuously. Now, let's look at the judge. Who who, who were they before? They were before the judge that was in Susan's trial. They were before the judge that presided over Jamie's trial. This is the same judge. And when you read the verbiage, the conversation that they're having in court, I mean, even the judge is like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Really? They just run it continuously? Wow. You know, and and they're just having this, oh, sir, I didn't know it either. You know, so they're just having this conversation. And he's like, well, you know, just just get them, just get the proof. Just just get us some paperwork. And no, that wasn't ever followed up on by anyone that we know of. We do not have any evidence whatsoever that those prints have been run continuously or that one print, I keep misspeaking, that one print that they said at the time that was suitable has not been. And remember the case that we discussed in the episode, those prints solve cold cases when they run them back through, because I I try, I was unable to find out how many prints were in AFIS 1991. But 
we do know that there's 156 million now. So it's very likely that there will be some hits on that print. And, and also new technology means that the database has been upgraded so much that it may be more sensitive to those prints that they said that were not suitable for APHIS may very well be suitable for APHIS now. So is this court hearing related to that at all? Or is that a completely separate issue, the recent one? The recent court hearing is just about getting getting the forensic, getting the documents related to the crime scene, the original DNA motion, the documents related to the crime scene, so we can have a crime scene expert and do those things to take a look at it and 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 make the argument to the court that DNA DNA testing is viable in this case. So now that we've had fresh eyes on this issue, is this something you can bring to his new attorney and you know bring to her attention and say where is this report and there needs to be some accountability? Yes, we're I mean we're definitely um, making them aware of of this issue. Well, Leslie, you did some research on these claims made by workmen about the IAFIS prints being continuously run. What did you come up with? Well, I did, you know, look for it. Honestly, I just looked on Google, but I can't find anything. Um, Nothing from even like a tertiary source saying that that prints are consecutively run. The only thing that I could find is that they're run when law, uh, local law enforcement requests it. And as Ray explained, it's done automatically, like an algorithm is created by the computer, and then those would have to be looked over by somebody. So I don't see how that even makes sense, that you could continuously have just 156 million fingerprints being scanned against the criminal master file because it would just keep spitting out so many algorithms and so many matches, and you'd have to have an entire staff there to constantly process those results. I mean, they have to go somewhere. So I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't believe that. I mean, if a listener or somebody knows better, that would be great. What I did find is that when law enforcement does submit the request for a criminal fingerprint, the turnaround time is 27 minutes. And if a civilian does it, it's an hour and 12 minutes. So because there's turnaround times, how could it just be continuously done all the time? That makes no sense. You know, and I did go on a lot of different like laboratories and engineering websites and things like that, who are selling software and equipment and trying to assist law enforcement with how to use this system. And they don't mention anything like that on there either. So I, I don't believe him. I think you can't do it automated. I think it has to be requested. And I probably think maybe that's why he didn't follow up with it because he was wrong. I thought it was interesting that he said he spoke with the the original. He said that, that Chris Jacobson was there and he was the original one that did them. And that, that that's where he got all of that information. But there's no documentation. Now, why wouldn't you go into court with a piece of paper with an affidavit? Well, he's bullshitting and it doesn't matter what that other guy says because you have to get it from the FBI. So it's not, uh, this is the FBI system. It doesn't matter what 
what this crime scene tech who works for the state says. I mean, you have to request it from the FBI and then the FBI responds. There's a lot of privacy issues tied up in that. So it's not, I don't believe it's just continuously running and law enforcement just constantly gets these hits emailed to some kind of processor. I mean, I don't believe that at all. I mean, like you said, the results are redacted. So wouldn't they have to redact stuff? I don't know. It's just crazy. Right. Do you know anything about that? Have you ever heard anything during your law enforcement about just continual processing? I'm not sure what happens at the the big computers in in the FBI. It's hard to go back and forth between 1991 when we're talking about ink prints on a card. And nowadays, whenever most police departments, you, you walk in or you go in for a license somewhere and they, they scan your fingerprints. They roll, they roll your fingerprint across a, a screen, a printer, and they classify it from there. Back in 91, I mean, anywhere along the line, if the police are running these prints off a card uh, and comparing them, we would send them to, we would send prints to the lab and they would come back and say, okay, well, it's smudged. Or when they, when the police officer rolled the print of the suspect, he smudged it. So we can't classify, we can't read it, we can't put a number to it. So the, the when they send them into APHIS, now we have the actual, from the Illinois State Police, we have their their submission to APHIS. We have the actual print that they have floating around there. It's it's just a number. So a computer can compare a number to another submission, but the question keeps coming in, like the state police. It says, this we're, we're putting this to APHIS, and let us know when the case is closed. Now, according to the you know, Bloomington and the state of Illinois, this case is closed. So does that print even there anymore? They they even look at that classified print and compare it to any new prints coming in. I mean, it's obviously been compared to prints that were there in 1999 or 1998, whenever it was. They compared it then. They did the case and they notified the FBI or that the Case is closed, so don't bother comparing it to anything anymore. So we don't know if that's happening or not. And Workman swears that they are. I don't know if he knows that for a fact or, like you said, he's just going into court and saying that to the judge. And I I believe, like you, that that he just went in there and the, the judge has him on the carpet and he says, yeah, we're comparing it every day. But I'm not sure that's happening. So, in this episode, we talked about how Jamie wants to rerun the print with today's enhanced database, and he's looking for DNA to be lifted from the print. What is the likelihood that that would actually work? We said in the episode it was less likely obtainable than from a blood source, but it could be done. Anyone find anything else out? Yeah, I read an interview with NPR talking about this fingerprint system and DNA tracking. The interview was more related to how this technology is infringing on privacy and the government is creating like a monster database of now DNA tracking the same way as they do the fingerprint tracking. And what they uncovered or, you know, found out throughout the interview and discussed is that since at least 2011, there's technology that's used in war overseas in the Middle East 
And what they do is they find these exploded IEDs and weapons after the fact, after they've already been used by the opponent. And they lift fingerprints off of them and collect DNA from the prints. And I think they also take swabs of the equipment. It wasn't specific, but I imagine they do that too. And then they run it through a biometrics database and match it to local civilians really quickly. And then the military pursues them for the crimes. And I guess this has been so successful in Iraq that they collect so much fingerprint and DNA from the civilians at checkpoints or anywhere possibly that they can. So they can use this in the field and quickly use a computer system just like IAFIS to track these people down years later. So if you think about it, that was just in 2011, 10 years after Jamie's conviction. And it's being so successfully used to that extent where you can take it off of an explosive. So you just have to ask yourself and think about it that if Jamie's box of evidence could be reopened and re-swabbed and the fingerprints re-ran, they would find a lot of stuff now. Absolutely. And that's just one, you know, the fingerprints are just one issue. It's just amazing that all of this evidence has just not been tested because, and and as Jamie says all the time, if this crime would have happened today, they would have done all of this testing right away to find out who committed this crime. And we have to reiterate that for the past eight, 10 years, that McLean County taxpayers have been paying for McLean County State's Attorney's Office to fight this case, where the Exoneration Project has said they will pay for all the testing. So how many thousands of dollars of McLean County taxpayer money have they used to fight this DNA testing. Right. And I think we did a good job of demonstrating that the technology exists. It works. And there's stuff here that could be tested. Um, So like you always say, Tam, why not test the DNA? Just what you said, Leslie, they, they have these prints, they lift the DNA information profile off of them. What the, what the print, I mean, it's just two things. The print that goes on, that somebody touches something and leaves it. It, The print is picked up basically, uh, from what I understand, like from the oils in in your skin. And that's what's lifted. Now, whenever they lift it, they put a piece of tape down. They pick it up. They put it down to another card. And it's it's basically sealed in there. Right. They're preserving the the DNA. Yeah, they're preserving the DNA a lot better than if we swab an old piece of evidence in there. Exactly. And that's what uh, that's what Jamie's looking to get rerun. Like you said before, all the other prints, forget the, the APHIS classification, there is possible DNA on all the other ones that we know of, plus, like you said, anything else that's in a in a corner of the box that they didn't... Uh, they didn't run to the lab back in 1991. All that should be looked at, and that's what they're trying to get at now. I just wonder how far we would get if the general public was more aware of the fact that we spend thousands of tax dollars to block the testing of new evidence when there's an exoneration project that's willing to test all that evidence for free. 
Right. There's so much in the media about like rape kits that just go sitting on a shelf. And every time the public finds out about it, they're highly offended, highly upset. This is the same kind of case. Do the testing. And in this situation, we wouldn't have a backlog or nobody available to do the testing. The funds are there and the motions are you know, ready to be filed. They just won't allow. We're doing the best we can. We have a great listenership. Uh, but if more people understood how many tax dollars were spent to block new evidence testing, I think there would be a lot of infuriated citizens, especially knowing that there's exoneration projects willing to pay the entire bill. I wonder how we could calculate that. You know, it'd be interesting to see how many hours of just payroll the right. state's attorneys have spent on this case. I think we might uh, want to put that on a billboard. Right. <laughs> I have requested from the comptroller, I've requested, you know, made FOIA requests about that. And they're very cryptic because they're state's attorney, so they work on all different kinds of cases. So getting the hours that they actually spent on the case is is not an easy task. But, you know, but we somebody, I think... How many times they showed up in court? I mean, yeah, and how much they make? I think that, and that which is public information. I, I think that maybe I have somebody that may be able to point me in the in the right direction because there was, you know, of course we have that news newspaper report that says, uh, you know, seventy five thousand dollars was spent on Jamie's defense, which is a little bit easier, right? Because they were brought in and they build. But they also have a newspaper article about Alan Beeman and how much money attorneys spent on their case, which they also fought DNA in that case in McLean County. And that was prosecuted by Charles Renard. And for years and years, he was begging for DNA testing. They didn't even do it until his case got overturned and he was released for it was other reasons up. McLean County hid evidence and they hid evidence of alternative suspects. They hid evidence of a calculating a drive time for um, Alan Beeman to be able to uh, murder uh, his girlfriend and drive back to Rockford from Wilmington. They, they hid evidence, same thing that happened in this case, but I think there was a calculation about that in Beeman's in Beeman's case, how much money they spent and how many years he was released and they decided that the case was unsolved. Then they tested the DNA and lo and behold, no, nothing matched Alan. It was two people they didn't even couldn't even identify. Right. So if we talk about even the last episode, the blood episode, where workmen is it Workman? He has a conversation with the blood tech about why they're doing the blood sampling for the DNA against again in 2008. And she writes a memo about it to her boss or even Workman now saying, oh, I called the lab tech and we had a discussion about it. And he tells the judge about it. We can calculate that because he's bothering lab technicians. So there's a conversation with two people's salaries there. There's how much time did it take them to write these reports up? How much time did it take, you know, the supervisor to read it, it get put into the file, it go into court, it make it into the transcript, all that stuff. Like if we get those 9,000 pages, let's start putting a price tag on every single one of those pages post conviction. How much money did it take you to create all this stuff? You know, it's just distractions. So, you know, let's show McLean County 
citizens that it's not just about oh, they're doing their due diligence. No, they're distracted. They're bothering. You know, there is a price tag to building a wall and maintaining that wall. It does take work. It's not just part of the job 15 minutes every day. And, and there's no good reason for it. They, they really can't say why they don't, you know, except they don't think that it'll lead to anything. And, and, they, and they talk about the strength of the evidence that put them away you know, the strength of the evidence. But yet we have, what, 6,000, 8,000 pages of documents that nobody has even seen. That's the evidence. In addition to everything that we've discovered that leads to deals and and memos being hidden and letters between state's attorneys and and, uh, witnesses while they're in prison asking for deals. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that we've discovered what else are in all of those pages? That is just incredible to me. They cannot talk about the strength of the evidence. The strength of the evidence is not strong, especially when we don't even have, we don't even know what's in all of those documents. I think they don't even know. I think they just know that once they release them, it's going to be so many people looking over them and scrutinizing them the way we've done so far. And um It's going to open up a ton of cans of worms and the entire conviction is going to be publicly criticized a lot more than it has been now. So they just want to keep the floodgates closed. But these people, and we've said this through all of the all of the state's attorneys, you know, the people that are here now did not do this. The state's attorney that's arguing for the state right now had nothing to do with this. He was a child when this happened. He has nothing to do and, and the, the judge has nothing to do with it. And the, the current state's attorney has nothing to do with it. And they just, it's frustrating that they continue to fall in line, but we don't know. We don't know that they are yet. They have an opportunity right now to correct and make things right and do the right thing. So we have to give them a chance to do that as frustrating as that is. And hopefully they will. Hopefully they will. You never know. It takes one person. It takes one one state's attorney. It takes one. I like one- the way you put that, Tam, that they were like a child when this happened. That like, that brings like a whole different level of like empathy to it and different perspective. And if they could just evaluate themselves and be like, yeah, in 1991, I was in like second grade, you know, like mm-hmm. this is not my cross to bear. They can either look at it as, oh, shit, this is my problem now. This is my reputation on the line. I've got this job. Now I've got to deal with this. Or they can look at it as, well, you know what? I really didn't do this. So I just have to do my job to the best of my ability now. And and you have an opportunity. And instead of defending a, a conviction at all costs, find the truth. And that is their duty. It is their duty. It is their duty when they find new evidence to turn it over. That is their duty. They don't just overlook it. That is not in their oath. They are there to meet justice for everyone, not play a political game so they can be a judge one day. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. 
If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential 